being at Robertsdale over the weekend, uh, of course, I ran into people who had connections with many of you, and those will come to me as I think about them, some with the Fetners, for example. Um, but another is, you remember Dahlia and Weston Jara. Uh, Dahlia married Zach Ferris, and Zach, in turn, adopted Weston. And uh, Zach and Dahlia had a baby boy, I'm going to guess around a year ago. And so I got to meet little Landon, O-N, L-A-N-D-O-N, a little boy named Landon. And before I spoke this morning at Robertsdale Worship, it was Weston that got up to read the scripture. And that was just a, a thrill, a thrill for me. And I'll think of other connections, uh, but it was a, a great experience. But it's good to be home, good to be home. The last Sunday night in December of 2023, uh, Tucker challenged us with uh, six resolutions. And I'm going to uh, speak with you a few moments about the last one. The last one, engage in acts of service regularly. And I think we all agree that if we did all six of these resolutions and made them a part of our daily lives, then spiritual growth would be the outcome. So let's purpose to continue uh, to do these things. Uh, and tonight, again, let's focus in on engaging in acts of service regularly. I invite you to look in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Jesus has a discussion with his disciples about uh, real greatness. Real greatness. First, there's a request. Notice the request with me. Verse 20 of Matthew 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your, in your kingdom. This is Matthew's account and it, it has James and John's mother's involvement. Uh, in Mark's account, it's James and John, and they come to Jesus. I was reading Mark's account earlier, and they say, they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And I thought about a little child going up to a parent. Mom, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. Dad, I want you to do for me. Just say yes to what I'm about to ask you. And what would we do? We would ask well, what is it that you want? And that's exactly what Jesus did on, on this occasion. Even to the mother of Zebedee's sons, the mother of James and John, when she makes this request, uh, Jesus asks what, what she wants. And she's very specific. Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand, the other on your left, in your kingdom. I believe her request shows a lack of understanding as to the nature of Jesus' kingdom. I believe all the, all the apostles had in mind Jesus setting up an earthly kingdom that would overthrow the Roman uh, power, Roman rule, and set up Israel as, as the power. And these would be the two most prominent positions in this kingdom. One at the right hand of Jesus, the other at the left. James and John on either on either side. But notice Jesus' response. 
Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. And then he poses these questions. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We know what's coming. We've read this account and we know what's coming. The cup, by the way, uh, was, uh, was used in ancient times. This reference, uh, ex- criminals would be executed, some, by drinking a cup of poison. And so the cup, in this usage, would, would become a symbol of suffering and of death. And that's what Jesus is referring to, isn't he? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? What's he about to drink? He's about to suffer on the cross. Are you able to go through something like that, he's asking? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Perhaps in their minds they thought about, well, they had been baptized, and Jesus had been baptized in water. Sure, we're able to, to, to be baptized like you, Jesus. But Jesus isn't talking about water baptism here. He's talking about an overwhelming experience. an overwhelming experience of suffering. Again, Jesus is thinking of the cross. When When he asks, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm to be baptized with? Interestingly, they respond, we are able. Sure, we are able. Jesus said to them, verse 23, you will indeed drink my cup. And be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. Yes, you will. You say you're able. And in fact, Jesus knows what's coming for them. You will drink that cup. And have that that baptism of suffering. And as we look ahead into the story of James and John in particular. We can go to Acts chapter 12 and verse 2. And see where Herod uh, slayed. Uh, He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. It's a very brief reference in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2. And Herod got such a great response on that that Herod turned his sights onto Peter and was planning to do the very same for him and had him in prison. But James, the brother of John, did suffer uh, at the hands of Herod because he was a follower, follower of Jesus. What about John, his brother? Well, the book of Revelation was written by the inspired John. In Revelation 1 verse 9, listen to what he wrote to the seven churches of Asia. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation, suffering, and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God, and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And you'll remember that John apparently lived lived to old age. But at one point he was exiled. He was exiled. He wasn't executed, but he was exiled to the island of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So both of them would suffer. James, in fact, would suffer martyrdom. For, for the cause of Christ. You will drink my cup 
you will be baptized with the baptism that I'm, a, that I'm baptized with. But, Jesus says, to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Now watch the reaction, and this should be no surprise to us. When the ten heard it, when the other ten apostles heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Many have suggested they were greatly displeased, likely because they had not thought of it themselves. J.W. McGarvey said this, or wrote this many years ago, Nothing moves the indignation of men more than to know that one of a company of equals is plotting to get an undue advantage over the others. Again, they're acting like children, aren't they? Two are wanting prominent positions. The other ten are saying, hey, that's not fair. Uh, what about us? And so Jesus is dealing with, with these apostles who misunderstand the nature of his kingdom, but they're vying for the prominent positions in his kingdom. And so he's got to settle uh, this dispute. Sadly, this isn't the only time that the apostles would argue amongst themselves as to which of them was the greatest. Let's go back to Mark chapter 9 for a moment. And we find these words in verse 33. Jesus came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed uh, among yourselves on the road? What were you arguing about, he asks. But they kept silent. For on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. They're likely embarrassed. They don't want to tell Jesus what they've been arguing about. And I believe there's at least one more reference to Jesus' own apostles arguing as to which of them was the greatest. And this would be in the context of the Passover meal, before the institution of the Lord's Supper. Hours before Jesus would be crucified. And isn't it sad that even at that point, they still got this argument among themselves as to which of them is the greatest, should have the prominent positions. Mark 9, 35, he sat down, called the twelve, said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And that leads us to, in Matthew's account, how Jesus redefines greatness for these apostles that are arguing about which of them is the greatest. Jesus called them to himself, this is verse 25, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. So he says, out in the world, among the Gentiles, greatness is determined by who is, quote, large and in charge. Greatness is determined by the number of people that you have under your command and how much authority you exert over those people. That's how the world defines greatness. And it would be true to a large extent even today. So he's saying you're, you're looking at greatness like the world views it. But Jesus is going to change their definition of what it means to be great in his kingdom. Verse 26, yet it shall not be so among you. 
Your definition of greatness should not come from the way the world views it, but the way that I view it. And he defines it here. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. That's diakonos. That's the, like a household servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Doulos. That's the menial. That's the way slaves were viewed in the first century. They were the property of their owners. No rights of their own. They were property. And no time of their own. 24-7 they belonged to their master. And were instructed to do whatever the master wanted. James and John are wanting these prominent places in Jesus' kingdom. He says you're viewing greatness and, and leadership by the way the world defines it. But it's not that way in my kingdom. Greatness and being first means being a servant and even a slave. The post of honor, Jesus is saying, is to be the post of servitude. And doesn't that apply to this resolution? Active, be active in service to others every day. Every day. Because that's exactly what Jesus was instructing his apostles to be about. It's not about having a position. It's not about having authority. It's about serving. That's the definition of greatness in my kingdom. Be, be a servant. And that is what God recognizes and rewards. Here's some applications. This is, this is take it home and practice it. Number one, we need to prepare to serve. How, do we, how can we do that? Well, we need to develop the mind of Christ. And God is calling us to serve him by serving others. You see, our motive in life is not to bring glory to ourselves. And any way you look at it, that's exactly the motive of James and John and their mama. But what mother wouldn't want their sons to have prominent positions. So we, we, we can understand the motivation perhaps. But Jesus is saying our motive in life is not to bring glory to ourselves. Our motive in life should be to bring glory to God. And the way that we do that is by serving him, by serving others. So prepare to serve. Develop the mindset of Christ. When you read the gospel accounts, one thing that I love to notice is that even in the life of Jesus, we see, as we experience in our own life, life is a series of interruptions. Would you agree? You may have plans that you've made for, you may have plans for tomorrow, but invariably something's going to come up, phone call, something may happen. And the two days are yesterday and today uh, when we were leaving the Robertsdale Church parking lot. One time I saw this couple trying to break into their own car because they locked their keys in the car. This morning I heard a car that, you familiar with that? With a dead battery. There, and it seems like those things happen at just the inopportune times. 
Life is a series of interruptions. But Jesus, as he is doing his earthly ministry, was often interrupted. And invariably, invariably he stops and helps the person who, who interrupts him. And I could give some examples, but I'm going to move on. But the point is, Jesus had the mindset. He was present. He was 100% present in, in his walk. And he was aware of people around him and the needs around him and would respond to them. We need to have that same mindset that we're, we're present and we're aware of the people around us. And we, we learn to look in people's faces and we ask how are you doing and with a sad face they say I'm doing fine and sometimes uh, I'll receive an answer like I'm doing okay and I'll say in response that's a could be that's a could be better answer right and many times they'll say yes it could be better and many times it'll lead to a discussion but Jesus had that that mindset of being aware of people around them and responsive to them in their time of need. Number two, we need to seize opportunities that are present before us each and every day. Galatians 6 verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. There are opportunities that will arise each and every day if we'll have our eyes open to them. And those provide wonderful opportunities to serve God by serving, by serving others. Number three, engage in service and relationship. And we're taking it a step further here. Not just ministering to people in their time of need, but showing a genuine interest in them. Because what we want to do is not only serve them in their time of need, but we want them to know Jesus. We want them to be saved. And so we engage in service, but also building a relationship with them that could lead to opportunities to share Jesus with them. Galatians 5.13 says, through love, serve one another. Serve one another. And that's what we need to be about. To the point where, number four, we love others and lead them to Jesus by showing them the love and compassion of Christ by helping them in their time of need that's what brings glory to God but that's also what what touches hearts what can cause a heart to be receptive to the seed of God's word I want to remind you of uh, the seal of the city of Mobile County Fire and Rescue Department and when I share this uh a while back, uh, Covey Sellers particularly enjoyed this. And Robbie Cartee is another that, that would appreciate this. But I took note that the seal has, emphasizes these three qualities or values. Competence, courage, and compassion. Competence, courage, and compassion. Of course, preachers are always looking for a three-point sermon. I said, that'll work. Competence, competence. If you know these things, do them, Jesus said. And that was in the context of John 13, where he has taught them by his example to be a servant when he washed their feet. And so you know these things. You are competent 
and we know that it's the will of God for us to, to glorify God, not ourselves, by serving others. We have that competence. We also need courage. It takes courage to, to care about others. It takes courage to offer to help someone who may be a complete stranger. But that's what Jesus did and he, that's what he calls us to do. To know that he wants us to serve others. Have that competence, but then have the courage to follow through. And that's also going to require a large dose of compassion. Why would we do that? Simply because we care about people. And we care enough to help. Um, some of us, I'm thinking about uh, Keith Rowley was there when Robbie went through his uh, graduation uh, to become a firefighter and paramedic. And I remember one of the uh, speakers that day at his graduation made note to the firefighters, you are always on duty. You're always on duty. You may not be on the clock, you may not be in your uniform, but you are a firefighter, and you're a firefighter 24-7. And he was challenging them to be responsive whenever they saw a need. And I thought how applicable that is to us as Christians. We're Christians 24-7. We're always on duty, and we need to be ready to respond, knowing the will of God with competence, with courage and compassion to help others in their time of need. Engage in acts of service regularly, even, even every day. But let's go back to our text and note one more thing, and that is the greatest example. Jesus modeled what he taught. And listen to what Jesus says. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's, let's break that up. First of all, the Son of Man, reference to Jesus himself, did not come to be served. He didn't come to this earth to be served. If there's anyone that deserved to be served, it's Jesus, right? Can't, can't you relate to Simon Peter? Let's go back to John 13 for a moment. And Jesus begins washing the disciples' feet. You remember Peter's response when Jesus comes to him? Not so, Lord. You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Of course, then Simon Peter, he swings to the other extreme. And he says, essentially, well, then wash me all over. But can't you relate to Simon Peter thinking about Jesus coming to you and wanting to wash your feet. And I'm sure all of our response would be, not so, Lord, I need to wash your feet because you deserve this honor. I am your servant, Lord, and I want to do this for you because you're the Son of God. But Jesus says of himself, he didn't come to be served. And so we need to remove that from the way that we think we're not here to, to be served. It's not, uh, it's not about us. And so we need to, to have this mind among yourselves, Philippians 2, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's the English Standard Version. There's a note in the English Standard Version for that word grasped that says, or it could be translated or understood, a thing to be held on to for advantage. Jesus did not look at his deity, his status as deity, as something to be selfishly held on to. His glory in heaven as something to be selfishly held on to. And he's going to go on to say, and we'll look at that in a moment, but he emptied himself of some of those privileges of heaven in order to come to earth as a man. But Jesus knew he had a mission. But his mission was not to be served. Because secondly, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. To serve. He came for a mission. This was his goal, his purpose. It did not fall to him by accident or because he could not avoid it. He chose in obedience to his father, yes, to live a life of service that would culminate in going to the cross to pay for our sins. Paul, I'm using Philippians 2 as a commentary on, on Matthew 20. Philippians 2 verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And when we read that, we need to understand it as he became a servant through and through. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was a servant. He poured out all pride, ambition, worldly desire. He gave himself in service to others, even his death on the cross. If we would be Christ-like, oh, to be like thee, we sang. If we would be Christ-like, then we need to come to that same realization. It's not about me. It's not be, me being served. I'm not the center of the universe. Jesus is. And the center of this universe had his focus on serving others. I like this statement by Tommy South. To the, <clears throat> to the extent that we are interested in others, we are like Jesus. To the extent that we are interested in others, we are like Jesus. <clears throat> Do not merely look out. This is the passage that Weston read for us this morning. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. One more part to verse 28. <clears throat> the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You look at the way that word ransom is used in Scripture. In the Old Testament, it was used for things we might expect it to be. <clears throat> in reference to paying the price to free a slave. Or the amount required to secure the deliverance of a hostage. A hostage or a prisoner of war. And in other ways. We can summarize the use of this term as meaning to release by payment. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. And that's what he did as he became obedient unto death. 
even the death of the cross. Philippians 2 verse 8. He paid the price so that we can be set free from sin. He gave his life a ransom for many to redeem us from sin and its eternal consequences. But notice this as I close. Not only did Jesus pay the price for our ransom from sin and its consequences, he also paid the price for our lives that we could learn this lesson. That he gave us a new way to live. Not a way to be self-absorbed and to think only of ourselves. But he demonstrated by his life and even in his death. That we need to be focused on others. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15. He died for all. Jesus died for all. Why? That those who live, that's us, should live no longer for themselves. But then what do we live for? But for him who died for them and rose again. Jesus freed us from the self-absorbed lifestyle of being wrapped up in ourselves that we don't think about what God wants and what will benefit other people. He died for us and he lived for us to set that example, to give us a new way to live, not for ourselves, but for others to the glory of God. So let's commit, continue to commit to that resolution to be, to do, do acts of service regularly. Do acts of service regularly. Because Jesus went about doing good, Acts 10, 38. That's the way he lived his life. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. May that be the descriptor of our lives as his children as well. Tonight, it may be that you're ready to respond to the great price that Jesus paid, the great ransom price that he paid to set us free from sin. And that payment can be applied to your life. His blood can be applied to your life. If you'll turn from sin and repentance, confess him, and be baptized into Christ um, as, a, as a, an expression of your faith that he is the son of God and that he died for you. If you're ready to do that, if you need the prayers of the church, we invite you to come right now as we stand and sing.